0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter
1: most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Really excited to have you here and this is going to be one of those conversations that I think is going to it's going to be evergreen. It's going to be one that we're going to refer back to. I am really looking forward to talking with Dr. Robert Pearl. Before we get to the episode, please go ahead and check out the new website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. We just relaunched it. It's been totally redesigned, and I just could not be more excited about what's there. We've got the four pillars of learning that we've set up there. You know, We've been doing this now since 2015, and we just have so many interesting and eclectic guests helping us discuss that interface of healthcare and society. It's just been an incredible journey and definitely excited for folks to come and check out what we're doing there. If you have the opportunity to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your shows, that would be great. That's what really drives the show into the public sphere so more and more people can find what we're doing. Definitely subscribe as well. We're going to be generating a lot of content in 2019. I'm really excited about it, so definitely don't want you to miss out on any of the shows that are coming. I'm on Twitter at ETS Show. You can follow me there. You can email me, mark at com. Nothing is more fun than interacting with people who are listening to the show, getting feedback, what do you like, what's not working, things that we can do better, things you want more of. Please connect with me. I'm happy to connect with anyone that's interested in the show and and wants to learn more about what we're doing here as well. So anyway, let's get on to this one. This is one I've been looking forward to. Dr. Robert Pearl is, is one of those people in healthcare. And again, we've talked about this idea of a culture of celebrity in healthcare. And physicians don't really do that. And that's probably good. And I'm fine with that. But if we did do that, if we did have us weekly for medicine, Dr. Pearl would kind of be one of those people. So he's one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders. He's just released a book. It's called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. He was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, which is the largest medical group in the country. And now he is one of those people that when there are questions to be answered about healthcare in the United States, the bat signal goes up, and, and Robert is the one that answers the call. He's on CNBC. He's on all sorts of different platforms. He's launched his own podcast now and could not be more excited to have him in the podcasting world. He's on Twitter, at Robert Pearl MD. This is going to be a fun conversation. There are so many things that we could talk about together. He's written an article for Forbes magazine, and that article was titled, The Five Biggest Fears Doctors Confess to Other Doctors. And When I saw that, thinking about where healthcare and society interface, how we can demystify things, demystifying the anxiety drivers, the stress drivers for physicians. Boy, that is a big one. So here we go. Dr. Robert Pearl, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Mark. It's great to be on the show. This must have been a difficult article to write because I would imagine you had a lot of counter-transference, you know, that idea of thinking about something and reflecting your own emotions onto it. You're writing about the fears that doctors would have and fears that are so big that they're actually able to talk about them with other physicians. How did this article even just start to kind of granulate and come together for you?
0: After I wrote Mistreated, which you say, "Why we we think we're getting good health care. We're usually wrong. By the way, all the profits go to Doctors Without Borders, a very important charity that's out there. I expected that I would get very negative feedback from physicians. I was very critical of the current healthcare system. I began the book with the story of my dad who died from a medical error one done by excellent physicians by the way, but just simply reflecting the broken healthcare system, the lack of technology, the lack of integration, all the pieces that you know so well. And I expected one one of the TV shows and the talk shows that I would get people calling in and complaining that I had undersold medicine. And it was exactly the
1: opposite. It was exactly the opposite. Yeah.
0: I I, I still get emails constantly and people coming up to me at meetings and telling me how broken the system is, not just for patients. We know that. Hundreds of thousands of people dying every year from medical errors, from lack of prevention, from complications that could be avoided from chronic disease. But how is it? affecting physicians. I mean, The statistics are out there. You know them, I know them. 30% of physicians are depressed, 400 suicides a year. Uh, half of doctors would not encourage their children to enter. What I think is the greatest profession. What's going on here? It is broken. And I believe that doctors want it fixed. And they're looking to people like you and me, people who run podcasts, who communicate with others to make the changes that are needed. They feel powerless in this current system, and they want it to be better. Like doctors from five millennia, they want great care given to their patients. So that's how I came into it, and it wasn't hard. People came up to me after my talks and told me their story, their fear, the way they feel like They're frustrated. I can't give the great care that I want to to my patients. Not because I don't work hard. I work very hard. Not because I don't know enough. I know what to do. But I'm fighting always insurance companies, hospitals, problems and social determinants in the community. I want the better system. And they're encouraging me and you to move forward, demanding this kind of change to the American healthcare system.
1: What you're describing, I think, is going to be one of the most powerful drivers of change. And we are seeing more and more physicians becoming forward-facing, being open, expressing themselves. And when they're doing it, it's not burn everything down and I'm, I'm quitting and I, this is ridiculous. It's I love what I do. I'm proud of what I do. I want to practice at the very top of my license. I want to provide the best care possible for every patient that comes across my office or everyone that comes to the hospital for the communities that I live in. So we have a huge resource pool and it's going to be figuring out how to mobilize and how to restructure so that we can tap into arguably one of the most highly educated, highly motivated well-trained and focused workforces in the United States.
0: Absolutely, you know, you mentioned four pillars of education earlier in my book. Mistreated, I talk about the four pillars upon which I think the future uh, road to great healthcare needs to be built. Yeah, I do believe that the specifics do need to be debated amongst physicians. I think we need healthcare that's capitated at the delivery system level. I don't believe that paying physicians and hospitals on a fee-for-service basis accomplishes the right thing. We should be rewarding people for the best outcomes, not rewarding them simply for the volume. I think we need integration in a system of care And as you know, because you're in Northern California, there are some multiple systems of care. That's right. There's the Kaiser permanente, there's the center systems, there's the dignity system, there's academic systems, there are community systems. It's not a single system. That's
1: right. There's my system, Providence St. Joe, and we admit patients as a hospitalist. I see patients from all of those other systems. And if I had heard you as a keynote speaker, I'd have come up to you and I'd have said, Robert... It's very difficult for me as a doc, as a hospitalist, that when a patient who doesn't live in the region and visits Sonoma County, because it's an incredible place to visit and we get people from all over the world here all 12 months of the year, or somebody from an outside system and they come to me and they're short of breath or they're confused or they're, in a, they're, they're incapacitated and they need to be admitted, I oftentimes cannot access all of the other great care that they've gotten at Sutter or Kaiser or Dignity or wherever they live. That is a barrier to excellent care. And I would express to you, That needs to be fixed. I need to be able to access readily the care that they've provided, to talk with the doctors that have taken care of them, and to to move that needle so I can move them smoothly and safely through their hospital course.
0: Well, that's the third pillar, the technology. The technology that we have in the United States today is left over from 50 years ago. In fact, longer than that. We, every American, (laughs) should be able to carry with him or herself. Yeah. All of, the meta, all of the information about their care on their phone. That's uh, right. It's, it's technologically easy to do if the major manufacturers would open up their APIs, application processing interfaces. Do you know, uh, Mark, the most common way, I'm sure you know this because it happens to you all the time, that doctors exchange information is through the fax machine. I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Yep. And when I tell my students that the number one way that physicians communicate is by fax, they look at me, you know what they say? What's a fax? That's right. They don't even understand this That's technology. Right. It, it, it dates back long before they were born. Yep. It's just simply not it's- the way to provide the best care. And as you know, the consequences, the United States is 29th in the world in life expectancy. So yeah, yeah. you know, Among the 11 industrialized nations, our quality outcomes are at the bottom. And it's not that we don't have great physicians. We have the best physicians in the world and they're trying the hardest. But the system is broken. The technology is broken. The structure is broken. And the reimbursement is broken. And outside of some organized groups, the leadership is simply not there to make it happen. And that's why they're so frustrated and feeling powerless because they know what to do. They know it's wrong, but they can't make the change happen.
1: As I'm listening to you speak and you know, you and I had maybe a five minute preamble before we started recording, but we've not met before. As I'm listening to you, there is a depth of passion and commitment in the way that you talk about this, that is incredibly compelling. And I love it. And we're also discussing you know in these last couple of minutes of talking we you've tapped on several complex subjects each of which could be its own textbook or its own podcast but i want to talk about that passion that you speak with as you're talking i can hear you building up where is that coming from where i'm, I'm smiling as i'm asking you this you speak about this with such passion and such depth of knowledge and so much excitement, and I sense a level of almost optimism as you're talking about these huge problems. And I'm feeling it, and I'm getting fired up. For you, where does that passion, where does that like, mm, that energy, where does that come from for you? I think it comes from two sides.
0: One side is my father's death. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was an amazing uh, person. Uh, he, was a, he was the son of two immigrant parents. He worked his way through dental school. World War II breaks out. He could have stayed safely behind American lines. Instead, he enrolls in the 101st Airborne. <clears throat> Parachutes on D-Day, captured by the Germans, leads wow. a daring escape through the darkened forest for two nights in a row, brings his entire troop back. You know, he's what Brokaw calls the greatest generation. A remarkably energetic man, rarely slept more than four hours a night. One day he became tired, went to his doctor, they made the right diagnosis. My brother, by the way, is the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford, so he, my dad had excellent doctors that my brother and I both picked, uh, and they diagnosed the hemolytic anemia, probably from one of the multiple medications he was on, and they took out his spleen and corrected the hemolytic anemia. Sounds great. Great physicians, great care, except my dad lived on the East Coast half of the year in New York and half the year in Florida, and the ones in New York assumed the ones in Florida had given him the vaccine against the pneumococcal uh, uh, bacteria. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's essential after your spleen's taken out. In Florida, thought New York could give it a two. Primary care, thought specialty care. Special care, I thought New York, he never got it. And, of course, he was out visiting me, went to my brother's house in Palo Alto. My brother wakes up in the morning for rounds in the ICU, like yourself, and 5 a.m., and there's my dad on the floor. Four days unresponsive in the ICU, two weeks in the hospital. He never recovers fully. He got out of the hospital, and if you want, at the end, I'll tell you the story about his death, which is another tragedy within itself and of course the diagnosis is pneumococcal septicemia so i see it in my life and what's amazing to me mark is when i go to conferences and i keynote all the time there's always a line of people waiting for me at the end and most of them have come to tell me their family story i've never met anyone who doesn't have a story about a medical problem not because of bad doctors that's right Cause of a broken system, a lack of information, a failure of coordination. So, part a lot of my passion comes from the personal experience. The other side to me comes from the optimism. You know, I've been accused of being an optimist, seeing a glass with two drops as being half full. Uh, I'm right
1: there with you. That's me too. I agree, and I think that's why it's resonating with me so much.
0: But when I look at the data, you know, take a simple that's a simple problem, a complex problem, but a, a terrible problem like stroke. Forty percent of strokes come from hypertension. How well do we control the United States today? 55% of the time. And what we know is that the good, well-integrated, technologically enabled, capitated organizations can do it 90%. That's a lot of deaths. Or take colon cancer. I mean, what we know is that half of the people who die from colon cancer would have either avoided the cancer entirely or had it diagnosed early enough for cure had they been screened. And what else? What do we also know? We know that you can be screened not just with colonoscopy, yeah, family history or previous polyps or something, that's the appropriate approach, but by a test like a fit test, a Cologuard, five minutes, once a year, for the privacy of your bathroom, no bowel prep, no risk of intestinal perforation, and how often do we do it in the United States? 65% of the time, and as a result of that, there's a 30% difference in mortality, compared to, again, who the best groups are achieving. My optimism is there's so much we can do. You know, what else do we know? We know that the leading cause of uh, death uh, in the United United States today in hospitals is sepsis. And we know that a major reason is hospital acquired infection. We know how to take care of it. It's called washing your hands. And one (laughs) in three times that physicians go from one room to the next. They don't wash their hands. And this was the area that drove me to research mistreated. I wanted to understand why doctors don't wash their hands. I wanted to understand why you and I understand, you and I recognize that the United States healthcare system lags almost every other industrialized nation, and yet so many patients think it's the best care in the world. That's right. That led me to look at both psychological research from the past, as well as the most recent brain scanning techniques. I looked at as an example, as I say, I'm a professor both in medical school and business school at Stanford. I looked at the research that came out of there many years ago, because it could no longer get approval from a research committee, at the Stanford prison experiment. Here's what Bardo takes regular, normal students. Half of them get aviator sunglasses, khaki pants, they become the jailers. Half of them get OR greens with a number the people in the jail, the jailies He puts them together because he wants to understand how can we improve the penal system of the United States. Within 48 hours, the jailers see the jailies as being criminals. They make them do debasing tasks, clean toilet bowls with their bare hands. The jailies see the jailers as sadistic. They board at the doors. Within six days, the whole experiment ends. Now remember, Mark, Everyone in this study knows that everyone else is a student. And yet, in the yet, context that's of right. jail, they behave differently.
1: And that's the thing jail. about that study. Everyone it's that.
0: It's, notes it's, that hospital acquired infections is, is terrible. C. difficile is, is terrible. Yeah. But in the context of being late for an office, in the context of having an extra patient, in the context of a broken system, we start, we come to see ourselves as incapable of carrying that bacteria. And who suffers? our patients. And that bothers us. But yep. somehow we can't make those changes happen until we shift the context.
1: I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, this article that prompted me to text you in the first place, the the, the <coughs> biggest fears doctors confess to other doctors. I just want to cycle through those quickly because there's two that I really want to touch on based on what you were just describing. So the first one in this in this essay that you wrote, number one, the fear of being poor. And this is not doctors who are rich wanting to be richer. This is doctors, you know, really burdened by any number of things. And you lay them out very nicely. But a huge one of those is being a burden of student debt, which we all know how much there is. It's now almost $200,000 per physician. There's the fear of change, which medicine is changing by the day. Some of it we embrace. Some of it we are scared of. The fear of politics. Then we get to the, the two that are a little more ethereal, but I think get to the essence of what you were just describing, the fear of being blamed and the fear of failure. And I want to just dive into those two together. I think you can almost merge those in a lot of ways. They go hand in hand. Doctors are not used to failing, to get to being a professor of surgery, to get to being a physician, to earning an MD, You don't get good at failure when you're doing that. You get good at excelling. You get good at knocking tests out. You get good at writing the best essays. You get really good at interviewing. You're good at stuff. And we're not trained on how to go through the process of failure. And oftentimes our cultures around healthcare don't encourage the the correct level of introspection and accountability for us to embrace failure as an opportunity to improve and to get better. And then when we fail whether it's we don't wash our hands or we make a medical error, there's a fear that we're going to get blamed. And that's a lot of things, right? Professional reputation, sense of self, medical malpractice, all of these different things that all roll up into one. Those are huge barriers to move the needle. I'm curious as you kind of, if you were to rank these five things, my suspicion is that four and five would be very, very high up if physicians even felt comfortable mentioning them?
0: I, I tend to see it as a Maslow kind of hierarchy. Okay. You know, I, I think that there is real fear that physicians have that the changes in medicine are going to have significant economic consequences for them and their family. We can't get away from that. If you look at something like Medicare for All that was uh, touted in the last election, you know, what you're seeing is a pro, a process that is designed to balance America's health care expense problem on the backs of doctors. It assumes, as Medicare does today, that prices will be controlled. And as we know, in Medicare today and Medicaid especially, California being the leading example, the government is not paying for the full cost of the care delivery. And so I think there's a component of that that I would not skip over completely
1: sure
0: i think there's a second part which is the changing social structure that is part of the maslow hierarchy what you see is that the relationships that patients have i think a lot of physicians who have practiced in the hospital in the past as an example used to really enjoy the camaraderie and it's not happening the kinds of opportunities that existed to really have an integrated experience with your peers has become less and less and less as people get more fragmented into the community, not in your particular group, but just overall in medicine today. And, and, and I, I would, would suggest
1: that that's one of the reasons hospital medicine is the fastest growing specialty in the history of healthcare. I Absolutely. love being in the hospital. I have my team around me every day. And we talk about cases and we exchange ideas. And when I say my team, it's physicians, it's nurses, it's administrators, it's physical therapists. and I get as much time with my patients as I want. If I round in the morning and, I, you know, let's say morning rounds need to be fast because I just need to get everyone seen and get some people discharged and just make sure a couple of people that I'm worried about from the night before, I just eyeball and get the ball moving. When I circle back later in the day, <laughs> my time is my time. If I'm going to sit down and we're going to shoot the breeze and talk tennis for 30 minutes, which we're going to do it and it's going to make those relationships that much better. So I think there is that demand for specialties and for, for, for positions in healthcare for docs to do exactly what you're describing, to, to have that sense of culture and esprit de corps.
0: Yeah. there's just not very many of them. Is, is That's the right. Problem with medicine today. But again, particularly as we move people out of the hospital, particularly as uh, from the perspective of many, as they turn the care over to hospitalists, the role of the physician in the office is no is, is, is much less than it used to be relative to the hospital. Much more in terms of this isolation in their own space. But the that point that's you're a making very is very important. Is that, point, yeah. These notions of self-esteem, which I, as I say, to me are at the top of the Maslow hierarchy, and really why people became physicians. They, it's it's for a higher purpose. Yep. You know, you don't become a physician because you want to be thought of as an hourly individual just as you've just described very nicely mark you do it because you have higher purpose you want to extend life prevent disease and that's why you spend an entire decade of your life getting trained and as you said accumulating a debt of two hundred thousand dollars this is a this higher purpose sitting in medicine and when now all of a sudden you find yourself being blamed being seen as simply a cog in the machine being held to metrics that are so mundane that they fail to recognize the doctor-patient relationship. They fail to recognize all of the other reasons besides a particular test or a particular drug. These are the kind of pieces that now make that sacrifice you've made. The, the uh, profession that you embrace for the highest uh, purpose suddenly disappear. That's a tremendous loss. So as I say, I don't want to totally discount the the bottom of the hierarchy, but for the reasons you've you've articulated so well, what's really driving from my perspective, the burnout, the depression, the pessimism, the unwillingness to recommend it to others is this very top of the hierarchy that increasingly is feeling out of control to physicians and they're afraid because all they can see is it getting worse. They they can't see it getting better, at least in the short term. They can only see it becoming more problematic over time.
1: I'm sitting with a word that you just said. I'm just sitting with it a little bit, and it's the it's the the word that you used was loss. And I think that that's a really important word. You know, we can we can wax poetic about these complex issues, but I think that that idea of a sense of loss for physicians, I think, is actually really profound because it's a very difficult juxtaposition we we all talk about you know the 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 sense of lofty ambition that you go into medicine with you know it's going to be a tough road you know you're going to take on debt and you still do it anyway it's because you're aspiring to something and that sense of loss of seeing those aspirations go away, not because you don't, not because you want them to go away, but I think maybe a sense that they got taken from you by what you said, being a cog in a wheel, by this big broken system, that sense of loss is, that that's really resonating with me.
0: I would add two others on top of it. It's, it's the loss of purpose. Yeah. And there's a, a degree of disillusionment. Yep. But, yeah. you know, it was interesting. I was talking to uh, some residents the other day. Uh, these are residents training in surgery. And what they were talking about is how they started to feel as though their job has only become to be a secretary, to go on the electronic health record and just enter information into this machine. They have lost this sense that the first thing they have to do is have this human interaction. With the patient, instead, they literally can sit there all day as residents. They know on rounds what the attending wants done. And now their job is simply to put it into a digital form. That wasn't why they chose medicine in the first place. That's that's not why they gave up a variety of other careers. They could have been incredibly successful in paying them a lot more money. That wasn't the driver. They came, as you said, for that purpose. For that reason they want to get out of bed in the morning, which is to make improve health. And now they find themselves in this, in a system that's making that ever more difficult on a day to day basis. And they're questioning.
1: Yeah. And, cool. and identifying surgeons in that role, I think is important on a number of levels. For me, it's important because one of the very influential books that I read in college was by a surgeon from Yale named Richard Selzer. And the book is called Letters to a Young Doctor, but there's an essay, it's a series of essays. And the essay in it that really landed with me was Letters to a Young Surgeon. And I loved it. And I still love it. And to, to have surgeons feeling disillusioned is a problem. This isn't, you're a surgeon. This is an art form of of the highest order where the pressures are extraordinary where the challenges are are infinite and you need the best people to be at their best to execute a surgery safely and correctly so if we're if we're losing a generation of surgeons where they feel like they're just doing clerical work on a population level and I mean I you know far be it for me to tell you about population health you you ran half of of Kaiser of the physician group for Kaiser that's a problem.
0: So I went to medical school at Yale, so I know Richard Selzer's work exceedingly uh, well. Did you know him? Did you ever meet him? I, I met him. I, he was, I didn't work with him during the time, oh, but I have met wow. him. Um, the wow. Uh, but you know, I have a, a homepage. It's robertcrollmd.com. Yep. I have a lot of the things that I've written. And the most well-read one that I uh, – Forbes article that I – by the way, I write every twice a month. But the one that has most been most well read was some uh, conversation I had with Malcolm Gladwell, and it's had almost a million readers so far. And the listeners can find it at Robert Pearl, MD.
1: My, my, I, I'm I'm engaged in vigorous head nodding because I I read it, and <laughs> the fact that you got to talk with Malcolm Gladwell there. Speaking of culture of celebrity, right? I mean, that's he's definitely he's definitely up there in the work that we do. Malcolm Gladwell, that, that's a good one.
0: Yeah, but the point is that. The article is about the experience of being a physician. Yeah. And if it's read by almost a million people. You know, it's been read by a lot of people who are not physicians. Yeah. And it talks about this dichotomy between that which is in medicine so fulfilling, that relationship with the patient and working for common purpose and mission and curing disease, and that which is most frustrating, which are all these changes that have happened to medicine and I want to add within that the fear of making a mistake, yeah, and yeah. when you talked earlier, it resonated very much to me about what it's like to be in an e d or in a hospital setting when you don't have the information when you're having to guess when you can't be sure what medications that are on, you can't even be certain what what treatment they've received or what allergies they have, <clears throat> when they sort of appear out of nowhere and they're going disappear. As you say, if they're visiting the area out of nowhere, you can't have continuity with that whole process. It's just dehumanized. And that's the problem in medicine today. Uh, There's another book that I'm writing right now where I talk about these three phases of medicine. We used to have many, many years ago, the 1960s and 70s, uh, a, a type of medicine that was purely intuitive. We hadn't done the science yet. We didn't know what caused heart disease. We didn't know how uh, cancer evolves and forms. We didn't have any technology at the time. We just did the best we could with the limited knowledge and hard work and our intuition, our experience sitting and playing. We then went through this phase, i said, call it the late, uh, the 80s, the 90s, maybe early into the 2000s, where we actually learned a massive amount as a profession. And that led to the ability to do what's called algorithmic medicine, where there was one solution to every problem, or at least one set of algorithms, and maybe multiple branches around it all. But there was the notion that we had the right answer based upon the problem. And the physician found him or herself in this role, trying to direct that care. We're now in a third phase. And to me, this third phase is one that often is associated with narrative and precision medicine. It's a phase when what we recognize is that we have to begin with the patient finding out what it is that they want. Yes, there are some problems for which we know exactly the right antibiotic to give, or we know exactly the right surgical procedure to perform. But increasingly, increasingly in the ICU, we're seeing patients struggling, something you deal with all the time, not to figure out how do we keep them alive. We, I don't want to say this totally solved that problem, but there's so many things that we can do, so many tools we have. You know, you can talk about left ventricular assist devices and intubation, and stuff, but should we keep them alive? Grappling with not just how do we elongate life, but how do we help patients figure out whether that is what they want. I think a major set of issues right now. And again, doctors get caught in the middle, as you say. I talk about that in this article. Is should we be doing more or should we be providing better palliative care? And it's just another example of where I believe that doctors today are caught in this middle. They're seen as the problem for what's a broken system. We don't do things right all the time. And when we don't, we should be blamed. But often we do the right thing. And then the problems are social, the problems are um, reimbursement, the problems are regulations. There are all these ways that doctors get caught in the middle. And I think in that process, it again takes away from that sense of mission and purpose and starts to degrade, which should be a very, very wonderful profession.
1: The approach that you're taking with that, those three phases, those three eras, there's, a, a I think, a note of real genius in that. That, to me, is, is what I would describe as a central dogma, right? We learn in biochemistry the central dogma, DNA to RNA to protein. The most powerful leadership lesson I got was Sharpie Seeley Medical Group, where I spent 10 years. The patient is first, the team is second, the individual is third what you just did is a central dogma around integrating the history of medicine i was a history major i got my ba in history I, you know that there's nothing more important than understanding where we came from to help us frame the future i think that that construct is absolutely correct and i think that that book that's coming which you're already invited to come back on the podcast when it comes out i think that that's going to be a really important work but i want to circle back to something that you said around people who are uh, around people who are not in healthcare when they when they think about these things and access this information what sort of conversations have you had because you travel all over the world you're not just speaking with doctors you're speaking with everybody your book is not just being purchased by doctors it's being purchased by everybody when people look at these lists when they look at these concepts do they say that's nonsense i don't care do they is there a note of support? Does it, does it resonate? Do they say, yeah, we need to support our, 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 our healthcare providers. We need to support our physicians. When people who are not in healthcare, right, we're looking at this interface of healthcare and society. When people on the societal side look at these complex issues, they read what you're writing and they hear you speak. What sort of feedback do you get?
0: Mistreated became a Washington Post bestseller. One of my claims to fame is I got ahead of Condoleezza Rice. So it's <laughs> very broadly. And as you say, you know, the majority of the readers are obviously outside of medical profession, just on a percentage basis. What they talk about at the American conferences, and I recently spoke in Australia and at, at the World Hospital Conference Congress, and what they said there from other countries are exactly the same, which is that the ability to get... The health care that we want for ourselves and our family is incredibly difficult. Patients will talk about, or families will talk about how they don't want to be dying in our hospitals and somehow they can't get out. They'll talk about how they'd like to be able to get care at home. They'll talk about the unaffordability of American medicine. I mean, we know that it's the number one cause of bankruptcy in the US today, but when you hear it from mothers, a study at Yale University said that almost half of children with type one diabetes are not getting the insulin they are required. The insulin that doctors have recommended because their parents can't afford to buy insulin. I mean, imagine that. You're a parent and your child can't get the life-saving medication Because in the United States, the prices of drugs are so high and designed solely to reward the companies that manufacture them that your child is risking his or her life every year. How does that feel as a parent? Or how does it feel in the reverse side as a child that it's your parent who's there in the ICU? You know they don't want to be there. And yet it's this sense of powerlessness. You know, I mentioned earlier, I'll tell you the end of my dad's life. You know, he was out visiting Uh, Sorry, after he visited us and had the problems, he went back to uh, Florida where he was living. My brother was at my house one night, and we got a phone call. My dad was in the hospital. He had uh, had a – required a procedure on his foot, which was essentially never fully healed after he had spent uh, two weeks in the hospital and developed a variety of ulcers of the foot at that particular time. And he needed a procedure done, and they had to stop his – uh anticoagulation that he required for some atrial fibrillation and he developed a, uh, a a bleed uh in his brain after they had to give him anticoagulation in, in anticipation of the procedure itself and my brother and i flew out there to see him and there's my dad he's lying on the bed strapped down he's intubated he has a tube through his uh, nose into his stomach uh, there's a line of doctors out the door. There's a neurosurgeon who wants to take out a piece of his skull. There's an ENT who wants to do a tracheostomy. There's a GI doctor who wants to put in a uh, percutaneous feeding tube. My brother and I look at the x-ray. My dad's not going to get better. This is not the life that he wants to lead. Now, remember, these are fabulous doctors. They're very mission-driven, purpose-driven, everything you would want. And for the next two and a half days, after we tell them we don't want anything done, we never see a physician. And the reason is because the American healthcare system doesn't reward doctors for being there for the patient. There is no ICD 9 or CPT code for showing compassion. Maybe with your spending eight hours every day in the hospital or 12 hours, whatever the shift plan is. <laughs> I was going to say eight. Be. Oh my God. <laughs> you have the time to do that. Yeah. But that's not what happens for the doctor who's in the office. That's right. Who has a patient in the hospital who said he doesn't want any more care. And so this idea of being there for the family just is gone. And I can't imagine that it's any better for that physician who feels as though I'm not able to do what I want to do. But it's not that I don't want to. It's just the economics. It's the structure that doesn't make any sense. So to your point – At the family side of that experience, you feel deserted. You feel as though you're in your time of greatest need. You want to turn to the people you're going to trust the most, the physicians who have cared for you or for your loved one, and they're not there.
1: And to that too, for the physicians, I will also say it's really hard because that does take away from that aspirational sense. There is nothing that compares to the experience of, Working with families and working with patients when there's a difficult challenge to work through and having those conversations, I love it. It's really difficult. Sometimes I dread it, but it's why I like to be in the hospital. And if you were to take that away from me as a hospitalist, I, I'd be in that same place of what the hell am I doing this for? Uh, right. That's that's my endoscope. That's my cath lab. If that was to be gone. That that would be anathema to me. And as you say, too many physicians now, well, I'm not going to do a procedure. I have no role. Of course you have a role. It's explaining why don't you think that the procedure is indicated and why do the risks exceed the benefit and why do we need to be advocates for, you know, a a death with dignity. But as you say, right, if if they're being pulled in a lot of different directions and if those directions connect with those five biggest fears that doctors have – we're, we're, we're driving the train in the wrong direction.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, the notion of what medicine is about, I think has changed dramatically over the past 20 years. And most many physicians, the average physician may be 50. So they were still in training 20 years ago. You know, a friend of mine, Ian Morrison, the futurist, talks about the being a hamster on a flywheel. And that's the sensation I think that is becoming more prevalent in medicine today. You just have to go faster and faster and faster. And it's true by the way. If you don't change the system. Yeah. If all you do is watch the costs rise beyond the ability to pay, you know, what can, what can you do? You can deny care. You can ration care. Or you can just simply work harder and harder. When you're a physician and motivated, you just work harder and harder and harder and spin it faster and faster. The time has come to stop that spinning and change how it's structured. Because as soon as you start to capitate this care, you reward prevention, then all of a sudden you find you don't have as many patients in the hospital and therefore you have more time to spend with each patient. As soon as... You integrate, working together as one, you can find alternatives, better ways to provide care than simply bringing patients to your office all the time or coming in for various procedures. As soon as you have that technology, you know, now you can do things that you couldn't otherwise do over distance and time. You know, we discharge people, as you know, from the hospital now, sicker than we used to admit them. (laughs) Yeah. And you're there. Every day, and your team is there 24 by 7 until they leave, and then no one's there. I mean, how about if you use video to reach out to people's homes, right. to see them there? How about if we have monitors and tools to allow us to have information? How about if we create a way that even in your job as a hospitalist, it doesn't start when the patient enters the ED and leave when they go home, but there's a, a component of continuity of care. Because they still have the same problem for which your expertise was so required. How about if we really are able to link you and their primary care or you and their surgical specialist together in a way that we smooth out this transition and in that process reduce the need for future hospitalization?
1: So let me, you're, you're, you're laying out one of, I, I would suspect are many, many visions for what the future is supposed to look like. And it's important that we have vision. So let's have a little fun here. I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. I'm going to give you an unlimited budget and I'm going to give you a, a table and I'm going to give you five seats at the table. You're going to be at the table and you got five more seats. Who are the men and women you will, you're, you're going to have sit at that table with you and hash this out and solve this. Who who are those people? Just off the top of your head, the men and women that you've met that you've that you've never met. Who's at the table with you to lay out the roadmap and a vision to lay out the central dogma, so that we start to create the environments of healthcare that we all want to have uh, as we as we live our lives.
0: I'm not sure that I see it as in quotes the specific names of five people. Okay, but I would say. It much more has to do
1: with the functions that are there. Good. Okay. I like that. So who who so, yeah, what, what are the functions that need to be in that room to guide the decision?
0: So one of the most important ones that have to be there, as strange as it's gonna to sound to your listeners, for a doctor to be saying this, is going to be the big businesses of the United States. Okay. I'm particularly interested as I write in that Forbes piece about the uh Amazon Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan Chase. Yes think that that has the opportunity to be disruptive, and I say that in a way because the payers and in the end it's really the businesses that pay outside of individual coverage, but group coverage and other kinds of coverage it's really the businesses that are paying and I believe they need to demand that these changes happen and so they've got to be there because I've got to convince them that if you folks are continue to tolerate a disrupted, broken system, guess what? You're going to get a will, disrupted system. doing broken the same system.
1: thing. That's right. But as soon
0: as you start to say, five years from today, we're not going to buy care from anyone that is not able to take capitation, to do it in an integrated way with modern technology and with a reasonable structure, I guarantee your medicine will change. So they have, they have to be at the table.
1: I like that. <laughs> and it's important to note that that entity that you described, now being led by a surgeon, Dr. day exactly. exactly right. There you yep. go.
0: Uh, The second group, I think, is someone from the political realm. Yep. Because I don't believe that the government will be the solution, but I believe the government has to create the rules that allow the solution to occur. Okay. And so I think there's a lot of excess regulation. There's a lot of excess uh, requirements that drive up costs. There's a lot of limitations that happen. I mean, simply the fact that the American government is prohibited from negotiating drug prices, and so as a result, we pay 50% more than all these other countries, it makes absolutely no sense, except that the government has allowed that, much because of the contributions from the pharmaceutical industry uh, into the electoral process. So I think the government needs to be there, uh,
1: number two. Okay.
0: I think the third is going to be uh, leaders of hospitals. And the reason I think they need to be there is we have to agree we have way too many hospitals.
1: Interesting. Too many hospitals?
0: Way too many hospitals. Okay. For two reasons. Number one, if we did the things we could do, we wouldn't need as many. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we lowered hospitalization per Medicare person to half of the U.S. average. Wow.
1: Half. Half.
0: Half of that half of that half was accomplished by prevention, by helping patients avoid heart attacks, strokes, yes. Yes. cancer in the first place. Yes. And the other half was by running hospitals efficiently. And I want to be clear because I know you're a hospitalist and you think about it that way. Isn't my hospital efficient? Look at Saturday and Sunday, and I will tell you that in your hospital – If you're admitted Friday night with the same problem as Tuesday night, you're going to spend an extra day in the hospital. That's not efficient. I'll also tell you that volume correlates with outcomes and with efficiency. And what we have right now is a redundancy or insufficient volume, whether you're looking at cardiovascular surgery. Again, you're in Santa Rosa, but in Silicon Valley between San Jose and San Francisco, is 10 hospitals doing heart surgery, three of which do two and three cases a year. Less than one a day. We need to have centers of excellence that are able to do high volume of complex procedures. And we don't need very many of those. We need to have some community hospitals. And we need a lot of today's hospitals to really move into what I use as the phrase hub. Because I was also the CEO in the Mid-Atlantic. And there we created these centers have 24-hour urgent care, staffed by ED docs and ED nurses with hospitals available and taking care of 60% of the problems that don't require multiple days sitting there with advanced technology, CT, MRI, they had PET scanners in this facility with specialists all around. It's a very different model. With the redundancy of hospitals in the United States today, I believe we need fewer of those and I have to get the hospital industry to agree. The fourth place are going to be the physician specialty groups. And again, there's this disconnect between what we know and what we do. Take orthopedics. What we know is that the operation of putting a scope into a knee and trimming up the cartilage one year afterwards shows zero, no better outcomes than physical therapy alone. It's been demonstrated originally in – Canada in multiple studies and recently reported in JAMA. He has the most commonly done operation in orthopedics. And when the orthopedic specialty was asked in the Choosing Wisely initiative, what would you change to lower the cost without negatively affecting quality, it didn't make the list. Same thing is true for um, bypasses in patients with stable disease, single vessel bypasses. Uh, a lot of the back surgery that we do, you go on through the whole list. And I have to convince, it's really the reverse of the question you ask, the specialists to recognize that what they're doing right now, generating volume without adding sufficient improvement in as much as maybe 20 or 30% of what we do.
1: So that's the, that's the dispelling the fee for, val- fee for service and replacing it with fee for value. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Good. So you got one more, and then I'm going to play – I'm the host, so I get to play one card as well. So you play your fifth card, and then I'm going to see if I get to play mine.
0: All right. My fifth card is going to be – now I will name uh, someone specifically. Okay. A friend of mine named Debbie Shetty. Have you ever heard of Debbie Shetty?
1: I have not. I feel like I'm about to, though, and I feel like this is going to be good.
0: (laughs) So Debbie Shetty is a heart surgeon. Okay. Okay. Uh, he trained in England and the United States, and he runs 11 heart hospitals in India. By the way, he was Mother Teresa's physician, so he's a pretty famous gentleman. Okay. If you ask Debbie, what do you do? Debbie will tell you that he sets the price for a human life. Now, I'm a surgeon. You're a hospitalist. Do we set the price for a human life? What do you mean, Debbie. And he'll say, every morning I come to work and there's 30 moms with 30 babies in, her, in their arms. They've been well worked up. They all need surgery. I talk for a few minutes and I've got to explain to them, I can't do every surgery for free. They've got to pay. There's does as much free surgery, by the way, as he could, but some of them have got to pay. Today he charges $1,800 a surgery. The ones who can borrow $1,800, the equivalent in rupees, their children live. The ones who can't borrow it, their children die. He says, if I can get my cost down from 1800 to 1500 to 1200 I can save more babies, which raises the value of a human life. Now, I don't believe that very many people are going to travel from Santa Rosa to, uh, to India to have their surgery done, even if it's at that low price. He just opened the hospital in the Grand Cayman Islands. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Cayman Islands. There are a one-hour plane flight from Miami. Seven-mile white sand beach. They speak English. It's totally safe. It's a tourist culture. You couldn't imagine a better place to be. The island has 50,000 people, and he's building a 2,000-bed hospital. You can count how many, all 12 of the beds that are for the Grand Cayman folks, and the rest right. is for the Americans coming over. Yeah, He'd be at the table because after I spoke to the other four people and they all said no, I would turn to Devi, and I'd say, Devi, how much do you want to charge me? to send people to your hospital, which, by the way, has better outcomes than any hospital I know in the United States. How much do you want me to send the people there? How about for total choice? How about for cancer? How about for everything? And pretty soon, all those other four people are going to realize that if they don't do something now, that they are going to be disrupted. And I would hope that not only would Debbie give great ideas, by the way, Because, you know, I can give you some examples. When I visited him in India, the day I was there, his teams, he has six teams, did 37 heart surgeries, including a heart transplant. He has one surgeon who only does tetralogy of flow. Do you know how good this person is at doing that operation? Wow. I had to keep a tetralogy of flow. I go there. Why not? Why not? That's right. Every day.
1: That's right. You want the person that's doing it all day, every day.
0: All day, every day. Yeah. And to me... Uh, he is going to be the force to drive. it. And by the way, the technology they have there is twice as good as anything in the United States. Huh. You walk to the patient's bed, carry your little, um, uh, monitoring device with you. All the data appears. You go to the next bed. The first patient's data disappears. The second one pops up. He has screens there that tell you at night how long it takes between a patient developing a potential life-threatening problem. This is not a, an arrest. This is someone whose O2 sat drops. Who's right. Blood pressure drops. Someone that's going to get
1: a rapid response nurse at the bedside.
0: How long does it take in a typical U.S. hospital today? I'm going to guess an hour in the middle of the night. He's at eight minutes right now, hoping to get down to six before a physician takes action, not just is aware of it, takes action to make a change sitting in place. There's so much we could learn from him. But as I say, what I would hope personally is that His existence and the care he provides and the opportunity there would serve as the impetus for the specialists, for the hospital folks, for the businesses, for the government to say the time to change is now. If not, someone else will take everything away from us. And that would be the catalyst to drive the process that I see.
1: I really like the way you fit that puzzle together. I'd like to add one piece and you can tell me if it fits in the puzzle or not, but I think it will and you touched on this a little bit, I want somebody in that room or I want an industry in that room that can optimize our information sharing and communication such that when I walk into the room as a physician, I have a full data set in front of me on my iPad. I can see everything and when I say everything, I mean everything. I can see if they've had their pneumovax and where they had it done. And I want a prompt that tells me if it's due or if it's not due. I want lab data. I want the physicians that have cared for them on a ready list. So all I have to do is just tap it. And and, and your, you get a text page that says, Dr. Pearl, your patient is admitted in Santa Rosa. And Dr. Shapiro is the hospitalist. And he has a question about the surgery that you performed on their colon cancer four years ago because they have a bowel obstruction now. I want that level of information sharing in the hospital. I also want the patients to be able to access the exact same information so that they understand what's going on with with machine learning that can teach them about their own pathology, where they don't have to access WebMD or they don't have to access some website that's never been vetted and can really lead them down dangerous paths. We We need patients to be able to access that same level of information so we can truly have shared decision making. I want that highest level of information sharing and communication because I feel like that's going to be the glue that pulls those pieces together so that when I'm at the bedside with one patient and they are sick, I've got all the tools that I need to move them through the continuum of care safely, quickly, and effectively.
0: The reason I left them out, because I am a major believer in technology, just like you are. And I think every American deserves exactly what you described, and every physician deserves to have access to that so that he or she can provide the best care possible. Is that what you've asked for is simple to accomplish. It's not hard. <laughs> what's, what's the limiting factor? It's those APIs. Yeah. And that's under the federal government.
1: Okay. The federal uh, I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Okay.
0: That the current manufacturers, because most of us have some kind of electronic health record in our offices, in our hospitals, but required those systems to be able to be managed by third-party developers, everything you ask for would be here very quickly. If you okay. look at something like an Apple product, yeah. what you see is there's 500,000 apps sitting on your phone, And Apple doesn't control that. They just make it possible for others to build and develop them. There is no question that if you, if they had the opportunity to get into that data system, protected by HIPAA, protected by privacy, with all the other requirements that sit in place, that within a year, you would see essentially what it is that you want. We created all of that inside Kaiser Permanente, but it's all within the contained system. Yeah you're describing so well, what we couldn't do is get outside that wall. And what people couldn't do is get inside the wall unless they were willing to buy the exact same system we had. And as you know, that's
1: quite prohibitively expensive. Sure, sure. Well, look, this this has just been a monster of a conversation. We have covered so much ground. I'm going to have to just sort of sit with all of this for a little while because this has just been, you know, again, we get to on the show, we get to bring in real subject matter experts, and this has been an unbelievable sixty minutes of discussion. And I am very, very grateful to you for coming and sharing all of these incredible insights. And I, I love this the central dogma that you are painting. I love the table that you've put together of who are the people to be in the room to reshape and 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 change healthcare in the United States to really be what we want it to be you're going to have to come back. There's going to be a lot more questions. There's going to be a lot more demand. This has been very, very special. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: It's really my pleasure. And I think for the listeners out there, what I want them to know is that everything we've talked about is possible. And they, whether they're physicians, whether they are, I often talk about the patients in all of us, whether they're in medicine, whether they're not in medicine, it doesn't matter. Until they demand it, and demanded of the elected officials, and demanded of the people providing the care, and demanded of society in general. It won't happen because for the legacy players, they'd rather not change. But for the patient, for the provider of care, change is essential. It can happen together. We can do it. And again, I'd encourage you to go to my website, robertpurlmd.com, and find out all of the opportunities that exist today in american medicine
1: that's a wonderful note to end on all of those links will be up with this episode as well and definitely encourage people to go and check out your writings the work that you're doing this has been very very special robert thank you so much for coming and joining us thank you so much for sharing and really appreciate you giving us so much time thanks mark thank you for listening to explore the space visit us on our website explore the and please subscribe to our podcast on itunes Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro
0: by writing to Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com.